0: There are two overarching principles or perspectives in Buddhism that illuminate this question. And these two principles also provide a bridge between our deepening meditative insights and our lives in the world. The two principles involved the teachings on emptiness and the teachings on the law of karma. These are the most basic aspects of the Buddha's teachings. But sometimes questions arise about how they fit together. You know, if everything is empty, what does it matter what I do? And some weeks ago, you know, there were some questions that came up in the, in the morning Quite vividly put, you know, if I murder somebody mindfully, is it okay? (laughs) What we come to understand through our practice is that even as we realize the insubstantial, empty of self nature of all experience, but things are empty in that sense. There is no self, there is no, s- no substantiality to experience. Still, there is a lawful unfolding, a lawful continuity to the unfolding of our experience. To say that things are empty is not to say that things are haphazard or disconnected Meditation practice and a wise attention in our lives brings us to a very immediate and direct understanding. As we watch our minds and we watch the actions in our lives, we begin to see what leads to happiness and what leads to suffering. And at this point, it's no longer second-hand knowledge. It's not what somebody else is telling us. It's not a belief because we're seeing it for ourselves. And it's in the direct seeing of it that knowledge of cause and effect becomes wisdom because of our own direct seeing. So the Buddha expressed this wisdom of the cause and effect relationship, that actions bring about results. He expressed this as the law of karma. And he identified karma very specifically as volitional activity. Volitional activity of body, volitional activity of speech, volitional activity of mind. And this volition has the power to bring about results. And it's that power which is called karma. That actions, volitional actions, have the power to bring about results. So what is volition, you know, I think, or or intention? At different times in your practice, you've probably been observing this sometimes elusive mental factor. It's very subtle. It's very quick. And yet it's that force or that impulse which initiates all actions. And each of those moments of intention, each of those moments of volition, have this inherent Power to bring about its own result. We see this not only in the impulse to initiate an action, intention is actually happening throughout the action. So for example, if we're walking, there's an initial intention to move, but the intention is arising and passing throughout the whole activity, and if the intention stopped, movement would stop. And so in that sense it's likened, not in the polytext, but it's likened to an electric current, you know, that's running a motor. If you you pull the plug out, the, the motor will stop. There's a poetic expression, there's a line from a poem by Dylan Thomas, which I'm not totally sure what he meant by it, but To me, it expresses the power of intention. He wrote, The force that through the green fuse drives the flower. So. (laughs) The force that through the green fuse drives the flower. I don't know, I can just imagine that. The force, the force of volitional activity driving the flower of results. Something like that. So although these intentions are very small, you know, and they're very subtle and they're very quick, they contain this very huge potential. It's like the potential of a seed You know, a small seed has the potential to create, to produce a huge redwood. Out of a small seed, very big things that come. Out of a small intention, many results come. Now the intention or volition, this particular mental factor, is itself neutral. It's ethically neutral. The intention is just that driving force. The function of intention is to gather together or to organize. It's an organizing energy. It organizes all the different mental factors and elements. It organizes everything to accomplish a certain action. So that's the power of intention, organizing, leading everything to a desired action. But what determines the particular karmic fruit of the action, the intention has the power to bring the result. What determines what the result is, is the motivation associated with that intention. You known as, you've probably heard, in the Buddhist psychology, all of the different mental factors kind of can, be, can be brought down to the basic three wholesome roots, three unwholesome roots. All of the actions motivated by greed, some form of greed, by hatred, aversion, by delusion, that's an unwholesome karmic, karmic action and it will bring the fruit of suffering. All of the actions rooted in non-greed, and generosity, in non-hatred, love, in non-delusion, wisdom, these are the karmic seeds that bring about happiness, that bring about peace. So it's very important to understand that motive, the motivation associated with this impulse to do, with this volition, is the determining factor. That's why, as it's been said, everything rests on the tip of motivation. Motivation is the key. Okay, so our challenge is somehow to integrate our deepening understanding of emptiness, of selflessness, of insubstantiality of all phenomena, with the great truth. Of this law of karma, that actions bring results. The integration of these two principles has been expressed in different ways. Now the great Tibetan Indian adept, Padmasambhava, who brought Buddhism to Tibet, he expressed it very succinctly. He said, though my view of emptiness is as vast as the sky, my attention to the law of karma, is as fine as a grain of barley flour. So even though our view of emptiness may be totally vast and encompassing, still the attention to the law of cause and effect, the attention to action and motive must be as fine as a grain of barley flour. In more contemporary terms, the Korean Zen master... uh, Sungsan, San, he, he put it very well, this integration of emptiness and karma. He said, there's no right and there's no wrong on the level of emptiness. There's no right and there's no wrong, but right is right and wrong is wrong. And we have to hold both. When the Dalai Lama speaks karma and emptiness. And again, these are the two most basic aspects of the teachings. The Dalai Lama suggested that if if we were to pick one of them to emphasize, he would suggest we emphasized the teachings on karma. Now this is quite amazing given how essential the realization of emptiness is because he understood that Incomplete understandings of emptiness can be used to rationalize all kinds of unwholesome behavior. Oh, it's all empty. You know, we have some limited understanding of what that means, and then we can engage in all kinds of actions that actually bring us suffering. So tonight I'd like to explore how we can experience the working of this law of karma for ourselves. So it's not just a kind of abstract theory or Buddhist philosophy. Oh yeah, the Buddha taught the law of karma. But how does it affect us in our practice, in our lives? And how can we apply it in a way that it becomes the condition for our happiness? So There are different aspects of understanding this law of cause and effect. One aspect can be called present karma. And that is we notice the immediate effect in our minds of different mind states. What does it feel like when there's fear, when there's love, when there's hatred, when there's calm, when there's peace? when there's envy, when there's jealousy. There's an immediate karmic effect from the arising of these different mind states and we don't have to be Buddhas to figure out what's suffering and what's happiness. We really can feel for ourselves when we're paying attention, when we're being mindful. And it's not only noticing the immediate karmic effect in our own minds, we can also notice of an extension of the karmic result of how people relate to us. How do people relate when we're loving? How do people relate when we're angry? How do people relate when we're jealous? How do people relate to us when we're generous? We all know and you know, when we pay attention. So the way people are relating to us is another kind of karmic effect. There's one other aspect of present karma, we can see it at work in the various things that we undertake. That is, how the qualities of mind, the various qualities of mind, contribute or not to the accomplishment of our aim. So, for example, if we want to accomplish something, The workings of present karma would be the understanding that to accomplish that present aim, effort is required, or discernment, or wisdom, or perseverance. So these qualities of mind affect the outcome in the moment of what we're trying to accomplish. So all of this is called present karma. There's another way we experience karmic results and this becomes very vivid in meditation practice. I'm sure you've all had many, many experiences of this and that is the understanding and the experience that the mind retains impressions of all our past actions. It's like everything's in there. Everything we've done, all the actions of our body, of our speech, of our mind, there is an impression in the mind. And these impressions become the source of great happiness or great suffering for us. When we think of past wholesome actions, just past good things that we've done, and they come to mind, there's a certain kind of joy that we feel. We take delight in our own past good actions. And when memories of unwholesome actions that we've done come, how do we feel? Probably not so good. So there's there's a karmic effect in terms of these impressions that are stored in the mind. I had a very, very strong example of this in my uh, early days of practice when I was in India. And as probably most of you know, when I finished college, I went into the Peace Corps in Thailand. And part of the training before we went, we, uh, I had the bad karma of training for Thailand in the winter in DeKalb, Illinois. <laughs> which I think has a worse climate than here. You know, so it's freezing, and you know, we're training to go to this tropical country. But we did get two weeks in Hawaii as kind of in-field training. But part of that, part of our training, was uh, killing chickens. And here I was, we were all going to teach English. So I don't know what they were thinking, but this, this was the program. And there was so much delusion in my mind at that time. And this is really an example of massive delusion. I just had the thought, I mean, it's definitely a distasteful thing to have to do, but I had this whole rationale. Well, I'm a man, and this is something I should be able to do. You know, kill this poor chicken. (laughs) So yeah, I kind of machoed myself up. And we were in pairs, and you know this other, this other friend was kind of holding the chicken, and they gave us these big knives. And, and I, have, I have this picture you know, of myself just after the deed of my holding this poor scrawny chicken you know, with this big grin on my face. It's like, look what I did. I'm you know, kind of <laughs> proud of myself. Well, years later, you know, after the Peace Corps and I'd gone to and I started practicing, all of this came back. You know, I was sitting, and my concentration had started to get good. Uh, you know, after a lot of, lot of time, a wandering mind, <laughs> but as it began to settle, and then these vivid images, of what I had done, you know, and it was so painful, when I actually could bring consciousness to that, and so, I mean, it was just murder. You know, I just murdered this being, and I felt. As you can imagine, it was just a terrible, terrible feeling, tremendous remorse and regret. And, and it just kept happening for days. You know, I would just be coming and I'd be watching and then feeling all this. And finally, just through the power of the attention, you know, of the mindfulness, slowly it began to discharge you know, that very strong karmic feeling. Because course, whenever I get kind of a pain in my neck, I keep thinking, <laughs> well, maybe the karma is not completely discharged. <laughs> you know, we might also have internalized, just from different actions that we've done or situations that we've been in, we might have internalized feelings Of anger or rage, you know, or unworthiness or grief, all kinds of feelings that are arising out of past situations which have been internalized, and the mind is storing these impressions. We come, we make space, and they start to come up. You know, we really begin to feel and see. Well, those are kinds of karmic results as well. Had one friend. Who had been a, uh, a medic in Vietnam during the Vietnam War. And he came, in, he came to one of the first meditation retreats we taught in California, and he was really suffering. I mean, it was almost like post-traumatic stress syndrome, having nightmares of you know the horrendous things he had seen And, and he started practicing, and all of this stuff was coming up. You know, and he'd just be sitting and sitting and watching and watching and mindful as best he could, really going through it. And this was a two-week retreat. But it was amazing. At the end of the two weeks, and he went back, he spoke to me afterwards, he said, after those two weeks, the nightmares had completely stopped. It's as if all of that had gotten processed out, you know, through the power of awareness. So we can see these are karmic results you know, of one thing or another coming as impressions in the mind. But when we bring awareness to them, when we bring a certain compassionate uh, understanding, then our practice becomes a great purifying process. You know, and this is kind of part of the karmic unburdening as we let go of all these impressions that we're carrying. Impressions of memory, of feeling, of sensation in the body. Being with them mindfully. Connecting, feeling, and letting them go. Letting them wash through. In this regard, There's a distinction I want to emphasize, which is very important, and might have been mentioned earlier, I don't know. But especially as we are reliving past unwholesome actions, and they come for all of us, and we've all done things that have not been so skillful at times, as these things come up, it's very important to distinguish between the feeling of remorse and guilt. Because It's so easy to fall into the trap of guilt. Oh, look what I did. I'm so bad. And it just becomes a lot of self-hatred. Guilt is an ego trip. And it's important to see this. Guilt is just a strengthening of the sense of self in a negative way. I'm so bad. I did this. You know, it's all around the I being bad. If we see that guilt is an ego trick, it's a trick of Mara, we can see it, name it. A technique I like to use is wagging the finger at Mara. You know, so guilt comes, oh, Mara, I see you. That's a line the Buddha used very often. Mara, I see you. So we're not seduced by it, and it is very seductive. It's easy to get lost in guilt. So we need to see it as a trick of Mara. We can transform that into the more appropriate response of what I call remorse, which is the wise acknowledgement. Yes, that was not a good thing to do. It was unskillful. And so when I think of you know, the killing of the chicken in the Peace Corps, there is remorse about that. Out of ignorance, just doing something that was unskillful, that was harmful, but that remorse is imbued with wisdom. It's just seeing it was unskillful, acknowledging it, taking responsibility for it, and also seeing the impermanence of being able to learn from it and to let go. This is very important because all of these karmic impressions are going to come up at one time or another, can we make it a purifying process rather than a solidification of self, a further solidification of self in guilt? The way our meditation practice itself unfolds is a karmic fruit. The Buddha talked about four ways practice meditation unfolds. He said for some people it's slow and painful. For some people it's quick and painful. For some people it's slow and pleasant. And for some people it's quick and pleasant. I think most of us are at most of us are in the first two, maybe some are in the third, very few are in the fourth. You know, it's either slow and, and painful, maybe it's slow and pleasant. Or if it's quick, it's usually painful. <laughs> but what's helpful to realize is that this is just the result of past karmic conditioning. It's not that we're doing something right or wrong. You know, if only I were doing it right, then progress would be quicker. Or it would be more pleasant. It's not like that. It's happening because of certain karmic propensities based on our past actions. One of my very favorite uh, memoirs of meditation practice was written by a nun in the time of the Buddha. So this, this is from the Songs of the Sisters. And it's just so encouraging to me. It is 25 years since I went forth Not even for the duration of a snap of the fingers have I obtained stilling of mind. (laughs) Drenched with desire for sense pleasures, holding out my arms, crying out, I entered the monastery. Because this is after 25 years. And then, after 25 years of this, she went into the monastery, heard the teachings, sat down to one side, and became an arhant. Our practice unfolds as it does. If we just keep going, the conditions come together. And sometimes it's slow progress, sometimes it's quick, sometimes it's pleasant, sometimes it's unpleasant. It's all impersonal. So if we can just stay with the perseverance of that nun through all of those difficulties, at some point conditions come together, we enter the monastery, sit down to one side and become enlightened. So another way karma unfolds, we can see it in present karma, just the effect in the moment, We see it in terms of the impressions that the mind has retained and as they surface, both the pleasant and unpleasant ones. We can also see how the mind develops certain habits and patterns through habitual actions. And we could think of this as the development of our personalities. Now, over the years, through all the actions that we've done, And again, here actions is actions of body, of speech, and of mind. We develop personalities, you know, fearful, or loving, or angry, or joyous, or whatever, through the repetition of certain certain actions. Every time we do something with a particular quality of mind, we are practicing that quality. So it's not that we do things and these actions and these mindsets are just happening in a va- vacuum and don't have consequences. Every time we do something, that's the particular quality that's being practiced in that moment. So don't underestimate the power of small actions. Just as a few examples of ways of practicing wholesome mindsets between the, beside the obvious ones that we're doing here, of course. You know the very wholesome action of mindful attention. But just, you know, in the course of our lives, when there's a thought of generosity, can we make it a practice to act on the thought? Because acting on that thought develops it, strengthens it we do that over and over again, generosity becomes a powerful force in our lives then. And it brings about powerful karmic fruits. One of the descriptions which is very inspiring to me about somebody who is really perfecting this quality of generosity just through practice, through practicing it, describes this person as someone who delights in being asked. You know, I thought, you know, how often if we're asked for something, what's the range of our response? You know, maybe, oh, why are you asking me? Or maybe giving grudgingly, or you know, maybe in a friendly manner. But to actually have that quality of generosity so developed that we delight when we're asked to give. Yeah, so that's, a, that's an incredibly wonderful state to cultivate and brings tremendous karmic fruit. Everything we do develops a particular quality of mind. We had one teacher, it was a Tibetan teacher, his name is Sokni Rinpoche, And he was a student of another teacher that we were studying with, Nyoshul Ken. Rinpoché, and this was a time when Nyoshul Ken Rinpoché was very ill, and very ill, and he was kind of in a dying process. And Sokni Rinpoché was on retreat, and everybody was encouraging him to leave the retreat to go see his teacher, and he didn't. He stayed on the retreat, and I forget how long it was for. And afterwards he said he didn't want to be planting the seeds, the leaving retreat seeds. You know, the the commitment, the honoring of the commitment to the practice he felt was so important, and to strengthen that seed, that even for that reason, you know, visiting his teacher, he chose not to do it. Then after the retreat he went and, you know, he did meet with him. But that was very striking to me. The acknowledgement of the fact that each of our actions is the seed of a habit. And so we want to take care with what seeds we're planting. So we need to make this reflection on the law of karma, you know, on seeing our motives for doing various things, a genuine practice in our lives. Again, this is not just Buddhist theory. We want to see how it's applying in our lives. What choices are we making? You know, Where does this action lead? What is it cultivating? And we can reflect, you know, do we want to go there? Do we want to experience the fruit of where this action is leading? So it takes some consciousness, it takes some awareness. There's another aspect of karma. It's present karma, it's the karma of the only impressions stored in the mind. It's the development of our personalities, our characters, through the repetition of certain actions. It's also an understanding of how specific actions lead to quite specific kinds of results. And the Buddha talked of this in one of his discourses, where somebody came to him and asked, why are there so many differences among people? Some people live long, some people don't. Some people are healthy, some are ill. Some are wealthy, some are poor. Some have great beauty, some do not. And this person was asking the Buddha to explain how these differences come about. So he gave a very straightforward answer to this. And he, he kind of laid out in general terms what kinds of actions lead to what kinds of results. He said that great health, good health, comes as a karmic fruit of non-harming. You know, and ill health comes as a karmic fruit of, of harming beings. He said abundance comes from great generosity. Non-abundance comes from non-generosity. Beauty comes from gentle, kind speech. Non-beauty comes from harsh speech. Long life comes from protecting the lives of beings. Short lives, the opposite. Now, when we hear this, a lot of questions come up. And usually, after this talk, I get a million notes. <laughs> so please restrain yourselves. That's not going to—you don't want to be planting the note seed. <laughs> but as a way of kind of. Preventative, preventative note writing. Because questions do come up. It is impossible to understand the law of karma in the context of a single life. You know, we have to see this principle of action and result, understand it in the context of many lifetimes. Because often people who are leading quite stellar lives in this life might be experiencing... unpleasant results. So it's clearly not necessarily from an action in this life. So we need a very broad vision in this. But even within the context of this life, even though we may not have it, there may not be an exact correspondence, we can get a feeling for this, we can get an intuitive sense that generosity generally brings generosity in return. How do people look when they're filled with anger? And how do people look when they're really expressing loving feeling? You can see the beauty and non-beauty right in the moment. Doesn't have to, we don't have to wait you know, for next life. So it's just helpful, I think, if we want the map according to the Buddhist understanding, you know we want to see well if we want to accomplish certain things or we want certain results we need to understand the causes that bring about those results it's very important not to misinterpret these teachings on the law of karma because it's easy especially from our western perspective where we haven't been brought up in this you know in the east this is just This is how people understand things. But it's not part of our Western upbringing. We have to be careful not to confuse this teaching on cause and effect, the law of karma, with attitudes of blame, of judgment, of resignation, of indifference, because all of this can get mixed in. You know, we can get caught in judging ourselves something, something, situation of suffering is arising in our lives. And a misunderstanding of the law of karma can, we just start blaming ourselves or judging ourselves. Oh, I'm such a bad person because this is happening. That is a misunderstanding. Or the unfortunate tendency that sometimes happens of blaming the victim of something. You know, somebody is on the receiving end of some very difficult situation and suffering because of it. And then there's, you know, sometimes people, oh, that's just their karma. You know, and it's kind of blame the victim or that feeling of indifference. All of that is a misperception of what this teaching is about. We can understand that all situations have causes and conditions behind them. Because this is what the law of karma is saying. Everything is arising out of causes and conditions, including our own past actions. Our own past actions are part of the causes and conditions which bring about results. So we can understand that and still respond to present suffering with tremendous love and compassion. And you've probably seen when we get caught in blame or judgment about our own suffering or somebody else's, oh, that's just their karma. That cuts off these feelings of love, of connectedness, of compassion. It's a misapplication. Has anybody mentioned Robert Thurman's subway metaphor? Robert Thurman, who's you know, a wonderful Buddhist scholar and practitioner, uh, professor at Columbia, he used this image which I think it just captures something. Uh, he said Imagine yourself on a subway. You know, you're probably thinking of New York. You know, so just a subway, a car and you're with this group of people in the subway car. But imagine yourself that you're on this subway car for all eternity. Okay, so there's this group of people in the car and some are really sick and some are maybe a little deranged (laughs) and some are suffering in other ways and some are quite happy and some are, you know, just reading their newspapers and eating lunch or whatever. So if you're with all these people on the subway car for all eternity, what would be the natural response to those who are suffering? I mean, you're sharing this car with them. You know, their suffering affects you. Their suffering affects everybody else. The natural response in that situation would be, oh, is there some way to alleviate the suffering, to raise the the happiness quotient of the subway car. You know, in, in the country of Bhutan, they have something called gross national happiness instead of the gross national product. There so we're, we're in the subway car together with these people, you know, for eternity. We want to raise the... GNH <laughs> <laughs> You know, the gross national happiness, because then everybody is happier. So we can understand that there are conditions, there are karma conditions for people in whatever condition they are. And still, the response when we're really present is one of compassion. That's the appropriate response. Well, we are on this subway. It's just a big subway car. You know, it's like Samsara. We are with each other for eternity, or however long. We can see the karmic unfolding for different people, some in situations of happiness, some in situations of suffering. And our response, even understanding the causes and conditions behind it, our response, the appropriate response, is metta, is compassion, is joy for the happiness of others, Reflecting on the law of karma, seeing that our lives are unfolding lawfully, it's not accidental, it's not by mistake. There are reasons, karma being one among them, for how things are unfolding. When we reflect on this, it changes our relationship to experience. There's a much greater acceptance of what it is that's arising, because we know it's arising because of certain causes. So there's greater acceptance, rather than feelings of resentment if it's unpleasant, or pride if it's pleasant. Now The Buddha talked of the, the eight great vicissitudes of life, the eight great changes, of pleasure and pain, of gain and loss, of praise and blame, of fame and disrepute. So these are the vicissitudes, these are the changes that even the Buddha was subject to, everybody is subject to. We just go through these changes. Acceptance of these changes through understanding that they are happening lawfully rather than accidentally. Acceptance of these changes doesn't mean resignation and it doesn't mean passivity in the face of what's happening. It allows for appropriate response. It allows for engaged action, but it can come from wisdom rather than reaction. And this happens the more we reflect on the law of karma, the law of cause and effect. To understanding karma. And the reason that I feel it's important to talk about this is because it is such an essential part of the Buddhist teachings. And it's so critical to understanding how to live happily in our lives. And it's not part of our cultural framework. And so I think it's important to really illuminate a little bit how this is working because when we reflect on the law of karma that our actions have results they have consequences they are seeds that bear fruit then we take we're we're more inspired to take responsibility for our lives responsibility for our actions we begin to take a longer range view of things instead of just what is probably more a cultural norm of looking for whether there's immediate gratification or not. Okay, is it pleasant in the moment? Am I getting some pleasure right now? Instead of that being the measure, we're really looking at the mind state, the motivation. See, what is the fruit of this action? Is it going to lead to happiness? Is it going to lead to suffering? We take a much stronger, even a compelling interest in what we're doing. you know, and in the choices we make and the motivations that are in our minds. Buddha called this reflection on the law of karma, one aspect of it, as clear comprehension. That is, considering before we act, whether an act is beneficial or not. To consider what seeds we're planting. At one point, I came across uh, a book which had this on the back cover A novel of love, lust, passion, and greed has something for everyone. A del- <laughs> <laughs> A delight. (laughs) And we all, maybe not all, but many of us love these books. (laughs) But sometimes I wonder what seeds are being planted here. You know, each of our actions, they're like drops of water filling a bucket. And each drop, you know, seems so insignificant But as we know, you leave the bucket there, drop by drop, that bucket gets filled. So drop by drop, our minds get filled. Every action of body, speech, and mind, every volitional activity is putting another drop of one quality or another into our minds, is strengthening that quality. And not only does it have the immediate effect that particular quality, it bears or it contains the power to bring results in the future. So it's very important. And one of the things that, you know, we learn as we pay attention, both in the meditation practice and how we're practicing and in our lives, is the realization that every action we do makes it easier to do that same action again. have you noticed this? We get into the habit of doing things. And they can be wholesome habits, they can be unwholesome habits. Every time we do an action, it makes it easier to do that action again. So it's worth paying attention. What are we choosing to do? Not with, you know, not with a self-judgment and not with kind of a grimness of mind. This can be a tremendously creative, joyous endeavor because we're actually empowering ourselves to make wise choices, to make those choices that will bring us happiness. It's up to us. Nobody can do this for us. Now, karma is not a mechanistic closed system. That's according to the, the teachings, not how it works. Nothing is fixed. Because our present actions and responses are continuously feeding in to the stream of cause and effect. And our present actions influence and change the direction and the outcome of this unfolding stream. So it's a a very dynamic, fluid system. So for example, and this I think is very good news, we can cover unskillful actions with skillful ones. Unskillful acts have less power In producing their results in a field of purity, so even if we've done, as we all have, you know, different unskillful actions in the past, our present condition of mind influences the power of those past actions in terms of bringing results. So it's sort of like you know the example of you put salt in a glass of water, and the whole glass of water becomes salty. You put the salt in the pond, you don't taste it at all. When the mind is narrow, when it's contracted, when it's in an unwholesome state, then any little unwholesome past karma has very uh, intense fruit. When our minds are spacious, when they're wide, when they're open, when they're mindful, when we're in awareness, even much stronger past unskillful action has much less power as it comes to fruit so our present condition very much influences the karmic unfolding present purity attracts past wholesome karma present unwholesomeness attracts past unwholesome actions now, so What we're doing now is creating a field of purity and this influences how things unfold for us. Different wholesome actions have different power. Just just in a very brief way. the, The Buddha said that in an act of generosity, that act is purified in three ways. It's purified by the giver, the gift, and the receiver. So, for example, if we give a gift to the Buddha, or some great enlightened being, that's a very powerful act, because it's purified by by the power of the recipient. Buddha said that one moment of the mind immersed in feelings of loving-kindness are many times more powerful than making an offering to the Buddha and the whole order of enlightened monks. I mean, that's amazing. You know, because you read these stories of somebody making an offering to the Buddha, and then, you know, the stories of these tremendously endless fountain of good results that come from that. You know, over lifetimes. And the Buddha is saying, one moment of being immersed in loving kindness, many times more powerful than that. And he said, one moment of seeing clearly and deeply the momentariness of phenomena, that rising and passing of phenomena in this very clear and deep and incisive way, of seeing impermanence on that level, is much more karmically fruitful than even that immersion in a moment of loving-kindness. So here you're sitting and walking and thinking, oh, nothing much is happening and what's the point? And there's tremendously powerful things going on because it's through the seeing of impermanence on that level that we begin to decondition the very powerful and deeply rooted force of grasping, of clinging. It's an avenue into seeing the emptiness of things, the selflessness of things. It bears, according to the Buddhist teachings, tremendous karmic fruit. Now he called this understanding of the law of karma, he called it the light of the world. Because when we understand, even to a beginning extent, we begin to get some, some understanding of the law of karma, that actions bring results and what actions lead to what results, then we are actually seeing for ourselves what leads to happiness in our lives and what leads to suffering. We have the ability to make wise choices. This understanding gives us the power to create and shape our lives. And without this understanding, we are simply acting out all our old habits and conditioning. So This is a powerfully transformative understanding. It's really the great empowerment of our beings. I'd like to close just with a haiku by the Zen, the great uh, haiku poet Basho which I think captures, just in a beautiful way, the workings of karma. He wrote, The temple bell stops, but the sound keeps coming out of the flowers. The temple bell stops, but the sound keeps coming out of the flowers. Let's sit for a couple of minutes. The merit of our practice be joined with the merit of all the wholesome actions of the three times, of past, of present, of future. And together may it all be dedicated to the welfare, the happiness and the liberation of all beings.